0: People need ordering. 12 Rules.
1: Hello. Welcome to 12 Rules for What. My name is Sam.
0: And I am Alex.
1: Hello, Alex. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? How was your holiday? Yeah, I had a really good holiday. Actually, I had a very nice time not thinking about any of this uh, and thinking about collapse instead, which I think is like a kind of a holiday. I, I was.
0: I wasn't thinking about collapse. I was thinking about our book that we've got coming out. Aha! Book, <laughs> you can go on. Which is called uh, The Rise of Ecofascism, Climate Change in the Far Right, coming out with Polity Press on February the 7th of 2022. It is this year. Um, and it's a I suppose it's a continuation of our chapter we had in, um, in our first book, um, obviously massively expanded into, you know, book form. Um, and it takes three parts. We go through the history of like what we call far-right ecologism, um, starting with colonial natures and working our way through to, uh, you know, the Nazis and person Nazis. We have analysis of, you know, kind of present far-right environmentalism, I suppose, um, including Golden Dawn and... Um, far right, Bolsonaro, in France.
1: Moldy, moldy, you know, like the whole spectrum of people.
0: I mean, I and mean, I think it is important to say that we took a global view of this. Like, a lot of the most interesting or most relevant, um, you know, far right governments for the in, in, in relation to the environment are in, in you know, in India, in Brazil, where the, there is a like kind of a need for, um, you know, there's a, there's a genuine global need for Bolsonaro to and his government to. And the interest behind his government to not cut down the rainforest. Um, uh, similarly with India, you know, India's flexing its muscles much more on the on the world stage. And recently, COP twenty um, six had a kind of watered down the coal amendment of that of that resolution. Now, you know, COP is not particularly, um, you know, was it ever going to be that good? Probably not. But it is relevant that you know these big emerging kind of powers uh, are, you know, making them, making their presence felt. And finally, we have a kind of a future section where we look into our crystal balls, um, read the entrails and decide what we think is going to happen. I think what
1: we're doing is planning out several different scenarios and looking at the dynamics between what we're calling a kind of reactionary movement uh, with a kind of environmental politics behind it. But that environmental politics could really go one of two very different ways. Either it could double down on what is still, despite lots of talk of ecofascism and so on, what is still the dominant tendency on the far right, which is climate denialism, could double down on that climate denialism and alloy this to a kind of uh, fossil fuel extractive industries. Um, this would be particularly important and uh, threatening in, for example, Germany. Obviously, you've mentioned both India and Brazil. Um, America is another place where this kind of movement might well emerge. In fact, it kind of already has emerged. The other tendency that could change quite radically in the future is if that reactionary movement allied itself not with the fossil fuel extractive industries, but with the kind of the new formations of green technology combined with that kind of militaristic edge. Right. This is a um, a kind of a Silicon Valley type imperialism, a uh, Silicon Valley type imperialism beat. And it is much more focused on the politics of greenness, which despite what I would like to tell you, uh, that it involves a kind of a transition to a kind of a more equitable world and so on, will involve the extraction of minerals from the global South on a massive scale. That is just a a prerequisite of all forms of green energy transition. And so that will entail a new kind of politics that will not necessarily be more equitable. And it's in this space, it's in this kind of combination of factors that we find what we call the batteries, bombs, and borders future of the the kind of the far-right ecological project. So those are the two kind of wings of it, scurrying between the two and kind of antagonising them, the kind of gnat on the hippo of these two uh, political formations, is what we're calling climate collapse cults. That is people who say the end of the world is nigh, absolutely we're all doomed. The only kind of power left is is kind of, the, it's always like the power of nature itself, which is the power to kill, or something like this. You know, the different formations this could take are wild and many, lots of kind of uh, quite terrifying research has been done on the kind of the uh, history of terrorism, and it's kind of likely futures, it's likely kind of recombinations in the future uh, there's speculations about what we call a bioconservative movement which is a movement that tries to re-establish in a kind of almost kaczynskiian manner the kind of uh, solidity and coherence of the the human body and resist its kind of technological transformation um and the ways in which this alloys with all the kinds of other beliefs around at that time, uh, the escalating conspiratorialism that will climate change will will entail. If you think it's been bad during COVID, you know, wait until something uh, something uh, kind of more dramatic and more chaotic happens in climate change. So, how exactly those will recombine is, of course, completely out of our you know our expertise. hasn't happened yet. Uh, when it happens, we'll be, of course, the first to tell you. But um, it hasn't yet happened, so we don't know. The book is coming out on the seventh of February, a month yesterday. If you're a Patreon supporter listening to this on the Saturday and um, a bit closer, if you're listening to this uh, as a non-Patreon supporter. However, today, what we're talking about is, of course, the fallout from the January 6th, um, riot, insurrection, what have you. I think one of the most interesting features of the day is that we don't yet have a name for it. Um, We haven't yet metabolized it in such a way as to understand what what it is, what kind of genre of thing it fits into. How would you suggest we call it?
0: There was a brief discussion on Twitter. I think the Naturalized podcast was like, "How do you describe what happened?" And there was, you know, the responses they got were, you know, insurrection, riot, storming of the capital, things like this. Um, I think obviously the way you characterize where this event has been characterized is, you know, dependent on your political alignment. Um, if you think about it in kind of American LibCon lib terms, you know, there's a liberal idea that this was like a fundamental strike against the democratic ideals of a great nation like America, you know, into the hallowed, sanctified halls of of the capital, all this kind of stuff. And the conservatives, Republicans, have kind of uh, uh, taken the kind of an opposite position of this was a peaceful protest with some very, very minor violent elements, possibly, um, you know, Antifa or controlled by Antifa or controlled by the FBI. And it's either, you know, as always with these things, it's kind of a spectrum. They all kind of uh, subscribe to the same thing, which was this is not uh, particularly much of an event. Um, But, you know, it's either this was a peaceful protest these people, the people who are kind of prosecutor in prison are political prisoners, which is um, the position of the majority of the Republican Party. Or it is like the FBI and Antifa allied to uh, do a false flag on the on the Trump movement and, and you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then there's kind of other kind of other takes, um, you know, kind of leftist uh, radical takes, um, which... You know, I, you know, we would subscribe to, you know, hold the capital and the guy the American ideals in contempt, and, and and within that, there's 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 a few kind of more sub responses like, this was funny, this was like an event, this doesn't matter, uh, or, and it's, this is what I subscribe to is it doesn't really matter, like it's not like a, like an attack on the ideals of 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 you know the, the seat of democracy of America, whatever is all obviously silly. Um, but also it is an expression of a movement that is continuing on. And I think a lot of the a lot of the kind of the focus on that one singular day ignores like the ongoing building of a reactionary movement that, ha- that holds in contempt liberal democratic notions of elections, of you know, kind of norms of the free press, all this kind of stuff. And instead, has like a, a much harder kind of reactionary clearing of the ground almost. I think
1: I, t- I have a different take from that, mostly because I don't subscribe to the, uh, or I think there's at least a kind of a, an animating tension inside the standard left account that you're giving, which is that it doesn't really matter, or that it's a kind of a, a kind of a comic event in some way, um, which it kind of is. Like comedy and disaster are not unrelated. They're, uh, they're, they're both like modes of the
0: same kind of thing. Um, there was a kind of a feeling of, a surreal kind of mix between the kind of quite, actually quite violent breaking in, you know, the, the, leaving aside the, um, what actually happened and who got assaulted or whatever, which is kind of immaterial. It's like the, just the aesthetic of the smashing the windows and the running in and that kind of thing. Why compared is it Compared to the, you know, kind of wandering around in the, in the Senate chamber. I mean, it had the kind of atmosphere. I think I said this in, that, in our original episode of like a, a student occupation. You know, like just walking around (laughs) in this quite official environment, but like there's some guy with uh, horns on his head and like a bare chested with massive tattoos and stuff. And so there's a kind of real discrepancy between the kind of two images of that day.
1: Yeah, I mean, so in some ways like that, that speaks to some of the contradictions of the day, which have been reflected in the different responses, which is that there's a clearly threatening tactic here, but there's no overarching strategy partially because the state doesn't actually exist in the Capitol building. Um, you can't go into the Capitol building, get the state, and then like carry it away. And they're like, oh no, you have the state. Right? That is, that's not how the state operates. It's a kind of completely farcical notion of like how power is exerted in society. Um, on the other hand, uh, the tactics can escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate and escalate. One of the things that uh, I probably should have mentioned in relation to the eco-fascism book is this idea that Climate change, because it is in some ways like a continuous process, like you're describing this movement, the desire that animates lots of reactionary apocalyptic thought to have a kind of a, a single moment of showdown, a single moment in which everything is decisively kind of resolved one way or the other, which I think is a real core part of uh, the reactionary apocalyptic urge to have this kind of final moment. That will be absent from climate change. There will not be a final moment to which everything is resolved one way or the other. Right? It'll be a slow, ongoing process. Um, if you imagine like a giant ship uh, trying to unstick itself from the Suez Canal, but um, a century long, right? Like that's what climate change would be like.
0: I mean, that, that is therefore true, that on, the, on the level of like the nature and the science, that is true. Of absolutely, but on the political level, the political response to climate change, there could be in a kind of apocalyptic, you know, coup or something.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so, so I think so. that's totally the case. And I think that the reaction we urge to have this kind of apocalyptic showdown, we, we, if there isn't if there isn't going to be a showdown moment, then you have to like decisively make one, right? Um, and I think this was the kind of moment at which people were trying to make a decisive moment happen, where everything would be decided one way or the other, right? It's a, it's a moment of, of salvation, of redemption and so on. It's a moment at which people are like, okay, finally, we'll just take our country back. And because they have a, um, you know, <laughs> uh, insufficiently abstract notion of what they were trying to attack, they thought they could do that by taking over the capital. And then, when they get inside the capital, they discover, you know, um, it's empty in some way. Like it's kind of it, the state is not there. It, it disappeared. Um, it's kind of receded. So that's part of the the kind of contradiction of how the the, the attackers themselves seem to have understood the day um, as a kind of failed moment of redemption. There are other kinds of contradictions, I think, in what you were saying earlier, not in what you were saying, but in in the responses you were detailing. And one of them is this, in the liberal response, it's the assertion on the one hand that what happened on January the 6th was like was fascism, just was fascism. It's something completely exceptional, completely outside the domain of normal functioning politics. And at the same time, the people who have been accused for four years or five years even of enabling Trump in various ways, namely the Republican Party, all these liberals go back to kind of, you know just like talking to these Republicans, like trying to form bipartisan consensus and so on. And so you end up with a situation in which the person who you are trying to extirpate from politics, say that's not real politics, that's more akin to terrorism, right? It's, It's not really a kind of political thing. It's just like this totally exterior abject thing. You end up having to make a deal with it regardless. And so there's a kind of a contradiction in the way in which liberalism or liberals in America want to separate themselves from January the 6th, but know that they actually offer nothing different from the animating forces that uh, stood behind it. The contradiction in the leftist response, I think, is, is, is in some ways because there's been too much uh, or a little too much kind of precision right, at the expense of a certain kind of flexibility of thinking in thinking about the far-right in America. After Charlottesville, there was very clearly a split between, on the one hand, Trumpism and the far-right, or fascists, or white nationalists, or white supremacists, or wherever you want to call them in the American context. So the, uh, they, they were, these two things were clearly, clearly split. Their interests diverged. They explicitly decided each other with the enemy. Anti-fascists really noticed that. They were like, Trump... And the alt-right are no longer in bed together. All these liberals who are saying that they are are getting it wrong. You know, and, and that's an important point. It's really, it's really kind of crucial. But at the same time, what this split meant was that fascism, quote unquote, in America became not a thing that is related to the state, but a thing that is related to this tiny little movement. Like white nationalist movements, people who will do a Z Kyle people who like have you know, swastika tattoos and so on. Right? So because there was this attentiveness to what had actually empirically happened, it meant that when those people weren't at the forefront, although they were there, weren't at the forefront of January the 6th, it meant that all the anti-fascists that I know of, or lots of them at least, started to say things like, this was not really fascism. We shouldn't really take this fascism because it wasn't, didn't really come from the far right, which was, is different from, from this movement. In part, in the UK, we've had the opposite experience. Instead of having a small movement, which is very extreme, and a large movement, which is much less extreme, um, but which does something, this is what happens in America, right? So there's a, a small movement, the far-right, white nationalists and so on, white supremacists. And then there's like a larger kind of QAnon-inspired movement. And the QAnon-inspired movement does something. And they are like, well, that wasn't the far-right movement, so it can't be fascism. In... in, in Britain, we have the opposite experience, because for so long, the main form of far-right politics in Britain has been the EDL, the DFLA, large street movements like this. It's been a struggle for anti-fascists to reorient themselves around a new kind of threat, which takes the form of a small, organised cadre of very very extreme people, namely Patriotic Alternative. And so there's kind of this, this like empiricism, like kind of focus on the facts which means that, in some ways, the transformations inside the constitution of the right has been, I think, missed in, in both cases. I'm sorry, I kind of blundered out a little bit there. That's okay. That's okay. That's, that's fine. It wasn't very interesting. Um, okay, so so um, you put in the show notes here. Does it actually matter? And I, th- I think it, yes. Uh, I think I think it does matter. I think it matters quite a lot actually, um, but not because it was an attack on uh, democracy, right? But because it will go on to uh, inspire, as um, many major political events do, um, people who are committed to the event itself for like the rest of their lives. You know, um, you experience this. I've experienced this. People are engaged in some sort of action, not necessarily like a protest something like that, but that completely transforms their their worldview when they're relatively young. Often. They have a sense of their exorbitant power they never felt before, and they just commit to that for the rest of their life. That's not an uncommon experience. I think people who come out of this January 6th event are very likely to, to, to have that kind of experience.
0: But I think also it was, in some ways, it was a culmination and also a continuation. Um, and a and kind of a fitting transition point between kind of Trumpism and kind of the new Biden era as well um the we could see this kind of form of, of, action happening throughout 2020 throughout the pandemic, you know a bunch of like kind of state yeah, local um state houses where local local state governments um, operate undersea anti-lockdown protesters. and in, in many ways there the, the was this, it was a similar kind of vibe going on let, the kind of a letters in thing, then and then actually successfully breaking in um it it all had a similar form that we 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 became quite familiar to of these uh, kind of anti-lockdown anti-vax a similar the same kind of people who were kind of participating in both likely um and it's a transition point as well because um like i kind of said before um and I think we're going to come onto this a little bit later. But the difference, you know, between what happened with the alt right and what happened with this movement is that the kind of the state in the in the Republican Party, like the official Republican Party, uh, you know, kind of half of the American state, modern half, if you count, you know, individual states and stuff, you know, largely have it has accepted January six protesters as some kind of uh, political prisoners. Have kind of quite cynically. Uh, adopted the event to their own ends, have recognized that their base um is, you know, you know, a certain significant percentage of their base doesn't believe that the election, you know, believes the election was rigged. And i have kind of capitulated to, to that very shamelessly. And, and 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 the difference between that and this is that is that with Charlottesville, um, the alt-right was very much rejected in a kind of quite conspicuous way by the Republican establishment. Um, And I think that is quite significant because of what I said before about this movement, like not being wedded to kind of liberal democratic notions of kind of committee and bipartisanship and all this kind of stuff, you know, like even like, you know, elections themselves, it's kind of this house is kind of clearing a ground effect in which kind of this, they would kind of sweep away the kind of, uh, you know, kind of adherence to, to those kind of restrictions and instead he's kind of adopting a much harsher much harder kind of uh view of politics as power you know because of raw power um and in a different response as well it's, it's kind of significant as well the democrats are you know um organizing kind of songs by lynn Mar- mel-, mel miranda and um you know doing a big hug with dick cheney on the floor of the of congress and and like you said, trying this kind of a bipartisan approach um, and the Republicans are passing these uh, election restrictions in their states. They control are kind of doubling down on January 6th They're supporting actively supporting the people who were kind of caught up in the in the prosecutions. And and this does have this is quite a serious kind of uh, development, I would say, There no longer is. Um, the establishment right or the governmental right uh keeping out um keeping out its harder more reactionary elements is is welcoming them in um and you know this breaking down of the boundaries in the right is something we've talked about since the beginning of the of the podcast
1: yeah so like traditionally in, in in the uk it would be between like conservatives and uh kind of street movements or like fascists right so
0: um
1: this and the conservative party has done a pretty good job uh over time, of 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 kind of distinguishing itself from that. Uh, in America, it's between uh, different forms of conservative, nationalist conservative, racist conservatives, paleo conservatives, uh, neo conservatives, and, and, and so on. Um, the differences are slightly uh, more complicated, I think, in America, partially because the the movement is larger um, and it doesn't have a single position on uh, like an, an empire as it is dying, which is what the, the kind of foundational distinctions in between conservatism and and, and the far right are in, in the UK. But um, empire when it is actively being managed, which is the distinction between the paleoconservatism and and, and neoconservatism and and so on. Why why is it that you think that Charlottesville was rejected, whereas this event has been kind of assimilated? Like, why is it that you think there was that difference?
0: I think it's almost no. You you can almost like kind of make the make the distinction on aesthetic grounds, Um, like the raw kind of images of the two movements Um, with. Charlottesville there was this real cacophony of different kind of incongruous groupings and like kkk robes and militia kind of outfits and yeah swastikas right? and swastikas and and um proud boy memor- uh, insignia and all this kind of stuff in kekistan remember kekistan who loves kekistan um and it was this kind of um it was it looked a very it was a very incongruous looking very chaotic looking thing and it was also you know fairly roundly, you know, stymied and defeated on the day as well. Um there's also that the obviousness of the fascism, or the obviousness of the of the of the extremity of the politics, you know. Um it, you know, the, the, the Republican Party has had a kind of fraught relationship with a lot of these kind of very, very extreme things. Um and it wasn't like kind of modulated in any kind of way. Whereas with January 6th and these anti-lockdown movements and all this kind of thing, it's an it's a kind of a, a more of an entryist vibe, you know. They've got they've got an entryist vibe going on. So you see them, you know, primary primarying um, Republican congressmen and and st- state senators and all this kind of stuff. You'll see them dressed very much in a kind of very conventional Republican-based kind of way, um, MAGA hats, et cetera. Et cetera. And it is something that can be much more easily recuperated into uh, the, the party. Um, it can be the party can accept it in um, much more easily than they can for example someone in a KKK robe. And I think that that's why in some respects it's more dangerous in many ways because it has this capacity to um, to enter into something that is extremely powerful. Yeah I, I, I
1: didn't and in understanding it as less in in the thinking that, that Daniel VI is less important than than Charlottesville, I think this is where I'm pushing on with some of the contradictions in the anti-fascist response, right? Is that by understanding Charlottesville is more important, we engage in a kind of exceptionalization of fascism in the same way that the liberals are, right? The liberals are like, this is separate from us. It's over there. It's different. We can cut it out. And by doing the same thing, in saying that january the 6th because it has a certain kind of like more i mean i disagree to some extent that it wasn't heterogeneous it was completely balmy like on the day <laughs> like really chaotic kind of like energy really chaotic look as well Like like and this, this 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 stuff matters particularly for far-right movements So there, there was a kind of chaotic look but it was like a it was a look that wasn't obviously evil rather than like the problem of being kind of chaotic um but i think when we say something like this is a mass movement that looks like everyday people. Therefore, it can't be fascism. We assume that fascism must be something radically different from normal politics, and that's kind of like not tenable. I don't think fascism is much more conventional-looking, much more kind of sticky, much more uh, kind of flowing through the whole, the whole of the kind of the social body than um, its conventional understanding is. Uh, I think. I don't know if, that, if I agree with it like this so the problem with <laughs> the problem with with January the 6th for like thinking about January the 6th is that it it is located exactly in the blind spot of anti-fascism you see what I mean like it's, it's, it's a it's a movement it's a mass movement that is demanding something very radical in support of a far-right candidate where the far-right candidate is like kind of supporting it kind of not supporting it kind of passively, Looking on, in a way that we don't understand, as like the mode of, of command that fascism normally has, it's also half very conventional politics and half very extreme politics, and this is difficult for us to understand, and so on. So it's like a, in some ways, it, it's it's an event that, that I don't think we we can see correctly. I don't think we we are, we are good at understanding, which is why perhaps we're having such difficulty kind of talking about it.
0: I think we're having difficulty talking about it. I
1: think we're doing I, okay, I'm, you're not. I am. I am <laughs> I'm having difficulty talking about it because 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 I think it it pushes on so many of the kind of the 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 ways in which thinking as quote unquote an anti-fascist has made politics
0: like obscure. I think that's true. I think um, there's a, that's that's the there's often a massive danger in 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 thinking about things in an anti-fascist lens, um, in that you end up dividing very complex things or very nuanced things into fascist or not fascist. And that's obviously quite silly. And then in this regard, like, again, we've said this before, but it doesn't really matter if it's fascist or not. It's what, what, what is the effect that it will have going forward? What is the effect that it was kind of, what is, what is it emblematic of? What is the underlying forces that it, that this event is emblematic of? Um, And it, it, you know, it is the falling away of these kind of aspersions to kind of, um, norms, liberal norms but norms nonetheless um, and you see kind of the um, the other, other sides as it were, the Democrats the kind of really doubling down on these quite empty notions of committee and bipartisanship and stuff and I think there is a, you know, that's quite I think that's fairly, it's kind of a dangerous situation in many ways or a, a kind of a, a uncertain situation for definite. Yes So one question I want to ask
1: is or oh, why is the state so sexy? Um,
0: what? That's not the that out- outline.
1: It is. It actually is. Uh, <laughs> you added that in, bruh. I, I I wrote some of this outline. Yes. Um, so the so some of the some of the response to to Daniel VI has been a rise of um, kind of op- what are called open source intelligence groups, um, OS- OSINT,
0: uh, sometimes acronymed. Well we, we can could say that the Austin's uh, been around for a little while. It's not just yeah. Yeah. from this event that it happened. What I mean
1: is it, so the techniques of um open source intelligence have been adopted by uh groups committed to helping the FBI in their pursuit of the January sixth rioters, attackers,
0: uh insurrectionists, what, what have you. Yeah, Shane Bell has got a good good bit about this in his protein article, which we'll probably link in the show notes because it's what, what, what I referred to when I'm thinking about this episode. You know, th- these names are kind of very internet in their kind of, you know, Deep State Dogs is one and Sedition Hunters. It's got a very kind of playful and also fairly um, horrifying implications of, 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 in the name. The names have Reddit aesthetics. Yes, thank you. Oh my god. Playful, how how can you like? This is why I need you. you, know? <laughs> you, you describe. It's, every got red, it's got Reddit, in terms of Reddit, a single Reddit Reddit settings, Yeah. <laughs> Has Reddit aesthetics, right? No, but like, I know exactly what you mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, my so my my question is like, QAnon is a deep state larp, right? QAnon people believe themselves to be on the side of the deep state. So QAnon believe themselves to be aligned with military intelligence. They believe themselves to be functionaries of the deep state, kind of unofficial, unofficially deputized by the deep state. These open source intelligence groups would love to be the FBI. They would love to be the FBI. So my question is, what is it about this moment in politics that is making the state so sexy? Like, why does everyone want to be the state? I
0: don't okay, have an so, answer for that. But yeah. So we need to we need to unpack this a little bit because we need to go back and say what these groups actually are. So in the kind of aftermath of of the attacks of uh, this. <laughs> In the aftermath of the riot, um, there was a great number of people, shocked, outraged liberals on the internet, who who kind of took it upon themselves, organising into these aforementioned groups, who um, uh, you know, poured through footage of the day, of photos, identifying you know, clothing and marks and hair and faces and stuff, like that, and you know, quite rigorously organising them into uh categories trying to find people matching them to social media profiles and then uh as the kind of ultimate step so all, all those kind of tactics are quite familiar to people who do open source investigations you know they're you know fairly standard stuff really the the step that they took is that they had then handed all this information over to the fbi um the the, the name is sedition hunters is going you know quite instructive, and Shane kind of nuts in his piece, you know, there's a, there's a long kind of history of the FBI and the American security apparatus uh, using the kind of, uh, you know, the pretext of sedition to clamp down on um, political radicalism, most, you know, obviously uh, communists, but also like kind of LGBT people and, you know, various you know, black power groups and all this kind of stuff. Um, and indeed, we, we saw exact, almost exactly the same methods of identification happen during the BLM protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, in which, again, people were going through, um, the FBI were going through and police were going through live stream footage and identifying people through their social media activity and, you know, whatever else the FBI has access to, you know, they um, say notes that they kind of pay these data mining companies like, you know, millions of dollars. To do data mining, it's and in that history, there is also a history of the FBI of the state exhorting the citizens of America to dob in their fellow citizens. You know, tell us who's who's a red, tell us who's uh, gay, whatever. And so, you know, however good the intentions of these people are, you know, and there is a. You know in their eyes likely you know this is a big shocking thing uh ridiculously in their minds it's on par with 911 but the thing is is that this capacity like the state is developing a capacity for uh, this kind of investigatory work which it didn't have previously and it's also will probably seek to carry on this kind of tactic of 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 crowdsourcing their own kind of oppressive apparatus you know um and and this is I think is is, is quite you know Pretty dangerous, you know. Like you, you can quite easily see a similar mass of internet users, you know, the alt right, the the rump of the alt right, or whatever comes after it. You know, the post internet far right, um, be mobilized in a similar manner against any kind of leftist demonstration or kind of leftist riot or whatever um, radical left 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 wing riot. And of course, we don't, we don't. That's that's not good. <laughs> it's really bad. Um, and so I why this why the state is so sexy. I think it I think it's it's part of a, a kind of a tendency towards a kind of easy authoritarian solutions to very complicated problems, um, which is kind of inside kind of liberal capitalism itself and has been since you know forever. Um and that, you know, it's a similar it's a similar impulse behind. Uh, you know vaccine mandates you know we, we must force people to get the vaccine we must have these like long extensive harsh lockdowns kind of input like a uh, regulated by these horrendously massive fines or whatever and you know leaving you know it's a similar kind of you can fix things by by the stick you can fi- fix things you can solve problems by just the increase of state power rather than you know other means of of kind of mitigating the pandemic, which is you know um, increasing sick pay, etc. All these other kind of charity, better in my my view, more persuasive, more more effective measures. Um, it's a it's a similar kind of impulse. Because lastly, um, you know, when you got these quite kind of you know now high profile. Scientists of and and researchers of viruses and pandemics, calling for like border clampdowns when we know that border clampdowns are not, um, you know, particularly effective way of stopping the spread of COVID. Um, this is a kind of tendency within liberalism itself, and maybe it's not it's not really new, but it's kind of coming to the fore because of the increased tensions within society as a whole.
1: So my answer is I think that. Because politics has fallen apart, that is, it's no longer possible to radically change the conditions of our lives via institutional transformation, because that's impossible, people have defaulted to moralism. And because they defaulted to moralism, they want to be the good ones. And because they want to be the good ones, they want to be identified with the force that is making things good things that are making things bad, that is doling out rewards, offering punishments, and so on. And that form is just the state. So there's a combination of two wishes here. The wish to be able to do something, and the state is one of the last kind of things that seems capable of doing something outside of, say, kind of worshipping Silicon Valley kind of uh, entrepreneurs. And at the same time, the state is, is the thing that guarantees the good if you have a very conventional view of, of what the good is. So it's this wish to be the good and the wish to exert power. And the combination of these two things has meant that politics has fallen apart and people have decided to become the state, well, like identify with the state.
0: And it's, it, just to follow on from that, it's the state kind of devoid of democracy. Yes. You know, it's the state, um, you know, like if, if we take the example of the UK, we've just, we're talking about this impulse. You know a lot of the people who are like massively in favor of lockdowns of border con- of like closed borders of like red lists and all this kind of stuff, you know, would this probably be critiques of the people who imp- like massive critics of the uh, of the people who implemented that, which is the Tories. And yet they're still in favor of 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 these measures and, and actively, massively advocate for them. Um to the kind of uh to the kind of uh, hindrance of a uh, you know like i said other forms of um, other necessary ways of mitigating uh, the pandemic and so it's, it's it's an adherence to um the the raw instruments of power rather than who controls them or what they actually do yes i think that's completely correct yeah
1: it's it's, it's a it's 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 a, it's an identification with power rather than identification with democracy which is some of the uh one of the kind of contradictions inside the the liberal response to this I think. Good. I think we've we've covered this. That's good. Um well done. Uh, <laughs> we've got to the bottom of it. Um it's we've, solved it, we've solved it basically. We solved it uh abound. There's no way out. We're stuck in this forever. Every single year everyone will have to watch all the footage again. Um one of the kind of the interesting things about uh, about the January the 6th footage is that it, it's um sprawling, right? Whereas 9/11 is extremely precise right it's uh, because there's almost no footage maybe one videotape of the uh the first tower being hit uh but there is like an enormous amount of footage from all the different angles of exactly like a, a five second event which is the second tower being hit and the um the the smoke cloud sorry the kind of explosion coming out of it um and then there are like little, little bits uh throughout the day um the falling man and so on and then there's the, the footage of the tower is collapsing, so there's there's there are kind of bits of footage, but they're all of events that are very like compressible, right? It's all kind of like um, sharp shocks, whereas the sprawling nature of January the sixth has meant that it's 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 difficult to get like a kind of a, an image of the day, which I think is one of the reasons why it's interpretively so loose. So the reason why people are able to say things like it was a peaceful protest and there was just like this violent fringe. Is because most of the live footage on the day, most of the footage people would have seen as if, if they're watching the events live. And of course, lots of people were watching the events live because they knew what was happening. We live in a kind of a live stream society. Lots of because lots of that, those events were just kind of so mundane, people milling around, nothing happening. The overall like a vibe of the event as it's presented to us or reflected to us through the media can be completely different, depending on which stream you watched, at what time, doing what, and so on. Whereas 9-11, it's very obvious what happened. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's, there's kind of, because of the sheer surplus of, of, of information collected about the day through live streams, it's difficult to get a handle on what it meant and therefore it's more open to interpretation.
0: What is your overriding image of January 6th? Right? It's
1: interesting. So it's interesting I don't have one. I actually don't have one. My, my overriding image is whatever the image I saw last of it. Like there was some footage I saw the other day on the anniversary itself of people being like attacked, the journalists being like thrown through the crowd by like people who are very angry. That's my overriding image because I saw that one last. What's yours?
0: It's the QAnon Shaman sitting at the uh, desk of the President of the Senate. Right. Um, yeah. But so I the, think that's been that has been my overriding image.
1: Yeah. So so that, that but as you were saying before, right? Like, There's two it's, very it's, different uh, different things. They are, but like as you were saying before, right? And I think this is really perceptive. It's exactly at the moment when the kind of the the um the kind of the focus point of the entire day happens, which is exactly the image you're suggesting, right? The the Q and, Q shaman sitting at the uh, the desk. That's the focus point. And it's exactly at that moment that it becomes most like a student occupation, right? Like it's, it's exactly the moment that like the, all of the sense of political radicalism is just like deflated and people just happen to be in a building. <laughs> it's like not that not that big a bigger deal, right? So there's a kind of a real tension in the way it's presented. Yeah, people try and make this into a big image but it's it's, it's not a big image. Uh, it doesn't have that kind of community effect because it is just a person standing behind a desk imagining the state would be there but that's not where the state is because the state isn't in a place. All right, thank you for listening, guys. <laughs> thank you very much for listening and uh, we'll see you soon.
0: Bye. 12 rules <laughs>
1: right yeah. yeah.